Father, humble me. Now, may you clearly be seen and praised as we open your inerrant word. May the glory of Christ, the glory of the gospel, be on display this morning. Engage our minds, stir our hearts as we worship you through the proclamation of your word. Holy Spirit, convict us this morning. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I've I've flown quite a few times the past couple years, uh, especially most recently to 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 Ukraine and uh, and back and uh, and to Bolivia, and so I I've experienced my my fair share of turbulence. Everyone knows, I believe, what turbulence is. Um, however, I do remember this one particular ride where my wife and I were were coming back from our honeymoon. Um, it was about a five-hour flight back to the Bay Area, and we were experiencing heavy, really heavy turbulence almost the entire time. I mean, for a moment, I, I thought we were in trouble. I mean, there, there was minor panic going on as things were, were getting a little rocky. I mean, the, the plane was literally bobbing up and down and side to side, and, and peanuts and drinks were flying out of its trays, and so... You know, my wife just started laughing because I was like, yeah, I think we're going down. I'm, I'm glad I married you because, um, man, if we're going down, that, I'm, I'm fine with it now. Take me now, Lord. I'm married, I'm happy, and I have my bride with me. Um, but there's one thing I remember. Uh, I remember the captain coming over the intercom, and, and he started, of course, speaking. And, and he said something along the lines like this. He says, I know it's a little uncomfortable, but I assure you it will smooth out soon. And we'll get to our destination shortly. You know, in the same way, we come to our text this morning, and it may seem a little uneasy seeing our Savior in a different light. As this passage unfolds, it may seem a little bumpy, a little uncomfortable for our Savior King. Yet we are reminded that all will be okay, that it will eventually smooth out. And so, this morning, I, I ask us to, to approach this text with, with reverence and with awe as we see our king in the garden. But before we jump straight into our text this morning, it's important we take a look at the buildup into our text. Move along here. Um, I mean, what a joy it was to conclude our series on 2 Samuel last week. Uh, we have been through the book of Samuel for or first and second Samuel, for a little over two years. And so, you know, I thank you, Pastor Rod, as you labored through the life of David with us and for us. And, and so we take just a small detour this morning into Matthew before we begin our series in the book of Mark next week. And briefly here, as we went through David's life, we were reminded that even before first and second Samuel, there was no true king yet. I think, I think Rod constantly reminded us of, of, remember at the end of Judges 21, 25, where it says, in those days there was no king in Israel. Every, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And then he took us through the end of Ruth, where again we were reminded about the line of King David will eventually come from Ruth and Boaz. And again, so for the past two years, we walked through this journey between first and second Samuel, first we witnessed the people's king in Israel, and then we saw the life of God's chosen, chosen king in David. 
And it was through King David's line where a continual seed will endure to the very end. Let me read to you 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 to 13. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, as we ended last week, we realized that there will be a greater king one day who will save the people from their sins. He will be the true and perfect sacrifice, the ultimate atonement, who would finally reconcile us to God. This king's throne will be established forever, as we just read. And throughout the Old Testament, people were looking for this one true king. And so as we open the book of Matthew this morning, again briefly, we're reminded that the king has arrived. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. From the very beginning, Matthew makes it clear that Jesus is the king coming from David. That's why it says Jesus is the son of David. He is the Messiah, the promised one from the line of Abraham. Essentially, Matthew is saying, the king is here, the king has arrived, friends. No, no more waiting. And Matthew, mostly writing to a Jewish audience, gives an account of the life, teaching, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Here's what Matthew is doing. Matthew needed to connect Israel's king, who was David, to the sovereign king, Jesus Christ. That was Matthew's purpose. He was showing us the one true king throughout the book of Matthew. And so I, I know I'm, I'm, I'm flying here, but fast forward to, to Matthew 21. And what we talked about this morning, it takes us to Matthew's account of Holy Week, Jesus' final week here on earth, starting with the triumphal entry, Palm Sunday, as some of us call it. And read with me here, Matthew 21, verse 9. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. There it is again. Matthew saying, here's the king. They're praising him. Somewhat. It started out okay. And then the rest of the week unfolds. The rest of Holy Week unfolds, which is, of course, this week. Sunday through Wednesday. Um, Jesus is predicting his death. He's teaching and engaging his disciples, as well as the religious leaders. And then we get to Thursday, which is found in Matthew 26, where Jesus reveals to us that he is the true Passover lamb, the covenant keeper, that Jesus is our substitute as he was instituting the Lord's Supper. And this is chapter 26. This is how it's unfolding. And then we find Jesus, the sovereign king, will become Jesus, the humble servant. But before Good Friday, we find this scene at the Garden of Gethsemane, a section where I will merely touch the surface of, of such an intense passage. 
like I mentioned in the beginning, we see Jesus differently here. Almost unrecognizable. It's a text of scripture where, where Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon, the prince of preachers himself writes, no man can rightly expound such a passage as this. It is a subject for prayerful, heartbroken meditation more than for human language. William Barclay said, surely this passage, this is a passage we must approach on our knees. And modern day theologian D.A. Carson declared, as his death was unique, so also was his anguish, and our best response to it is hushed worship. And so I encourage you this morning, as we're reading through this text, that we worship our King in the garden. My aim for us this morning is this. Jesus, in his humanity, submits to the will of the Father in the darkness of the garden. Jesus, in his humanity, submits to the will of the Father in the darkness of the garden. I'm not going to make you write much this morning. I have three main points. First, we're going to see the king's pain, his prayer, and then his plight. We're going to see the king's pain, the king's prayer, and then the king's plight. First, let's look at the pain of the king. The pain of the king. Reading, Then Jesus went with, with them to a place called, called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. You know, one of the ongoing debates throughout the centuries, especially in seminary surroundings, is the humanity of Jesus. There are some who believe, there are some, believe it or not, who find it hard to accept that Jesus was fully human and fully divine at the same time. In R.C. Sproul's word, he would say, Jesus was truly human and truly divine. And the reason being is, how could God feel or experience pain? Even temptation, because Jesus is God. So the argument is, how could God know our pain or, or our sorrow? People have wrestled with this certain theological argument, again, for centuries. I firmly believe that Jesus was fully human and fully God at the same time while he was here on earth. And so let me take you through um, how normally this argument unfolds and, and what people use to back up this argument, so to speak. Um, they point out uh, through various points of Jesus' life and his humanity. For example, uh, we know that Jesus was born of a woman, right, in a manger. It's safe to assume that he cried, that he needed to be fed, just like all newborns do. In Luke 2.52, we find as Jesus grew up, that he increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. In other words, Jesus learned the law just like us. And then what follows is Jesus' time in the wilderness. A familiar passage for all of us, right? Where he was tempted and tried by Satan in Matthew 4. In the wilderness, he was hungry, he was tired, he resisted the, the devil's temptations in all his humanity. Now again, I'm pointing to various points of Scripture where we find Jesus being truly human. And then, as, we, as Peter read this morning in Philippians 2, it explains Jesus' humi humility in becoming man. 
And let me read to you, it's just a different translation. It's the Holman Christian version. Philippians 2, verses 5 to 8. Listen, make your own attitude of that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a slave, taking on the likeness of men. And when he had come as a man in external form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So why am I explaining this to you? Why am I taking the time to explain this to you this morning? You know, I, I want us to see Jesus as God because he is. But we need to understand and believe that Jesus was truly human as we see the pain of the Messiah himself in our texts. He experienced and felt what all people go through. And we see Jesus, Jesus in this light. And as we see Jesus in this light, we'll find his passion journey all but more powerful, all but more wonderful. Therefore, in our passage, Jesus' humanity is under a microscope for all of us to see. And so let, let's return to our passage. Now imagine this setting with all that's, that's going on, all that was going on at the beginning of the week. People were praising him as he entered Jerusalem. And then as Holy Week continued, the scene sort of zooms in into Jesus a little after midnight as Jesus enters the garden. You know, as I was reading this, I was thinking of a Broadway play develop, and all of a sudden it becomes pitch dark, and the curtain rises to Jesus as he approaches the Father in the dark. Of course, the scene unfolds on the outskirts of the garden with all the disciples. But then he goes deeper in the garden with just the three of them, Peter, James, and John. Take note that these were the same disciples who were present with him at the transfiguration in Matthew 17. So it's interesting to note here that when, what we find is the same disciples who actually witnessed Jesus' glory will now witness the king's extreme moment of despair. And here's where it gets somewhat unusual. Look at verse 37 of the second part. It says that he, Jesus, began to be sorrowful and troubled. That word began means something was beginning or, or, or ruling over Jesus at this very moment. So as he was walking deeper into the garden, something was happening to him. What began brought sorrow and trouble upon Jesus, as the text indicates. Look, something was overwhelming the king. That term, sorrow, literally means very distressed or, or struck with terror. Not only was he struck with terror, but Jesus was troubled. The phrase or word that, that captures the essence of that word is filled with unrest, anxiety, or he, he was upset. What we find is Jesus in a spiritual and mental agony that was so strong, so overwhelming, that it struck him to the point of death. Look at verse 38. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Jesus is saying, I am so struck with terror and grief that it feels like it's going to kill me before I even get to the cross. I mean, he knows he was, he was going to die at the cross. 
But at that moment, at this moment, reality hit, and it terrified him. You know, some of us have been deeply distressed before, even sorrowful. So we could somewhat relate to being deeply distressed. The moment we were so overwhelmed that we were filled with, uh, with unrest and anxiety. An example I came across, in order to get this picture, was this. And a writer said, imagine walking down the street as you, enter the, as you turn the corner. And as you turn the corner, you see a loved one in an accident. And they're, they're mutilated. Now imagine the terror you would feel at that very moment. You know, I'm not sharing this example for the sake of, of perfect comparison, but to give us a greater understanding of what Jesus was, ex- was experiencing at this moment. He was experiencing spiritual mutilation. His grief was greater than anything we could ever conceive. The Apoll- the, the Luke, the physician, in his account, tells us what the, what the disciples saw while he was praying in agony. In Luke 22, verse 44, it says this, His sweat became like great drops of blood falling down on the ground. Commentaries about the garden scene found in Luke was that Jesus was drenched or soaking in sweat, and there was actually blood in his sweat. Now, medically speaking, under great stress, studies have shown that blood could come out of our pores when sweating. I mean, Friends, do we get the picture here? Do we see our Savior in the garden? Do you find anything odd at the moment, at this moment in time? Now remember, throughout the life of Christ, leading up to this point, we have a calm, humble, and gentle Jesus. As he faced Satan in the wilderness, as he healed and fed many people, even raised people from the dead, as he calmed the storms, as he interacted with, with, with religious leaders who challenged him again and again, Jesus was, read, was always ready and steadily doing the Father's will under a variety of circumstances and under all sorts of pressure. Yet this moment was different. One writer puts it, grief enveloped him, surrounded him, saturated his conscience mind. It was so deep It was as if death had wrapped its fingers around his shoulders. Nowhere in the gospel narrative can we enter as fully into the humanity of Christ as in the garden. After reading the first couple verses of our passage, there is no question in my mind that Jesus was truly human and he was experiencing mental pain and anguish and physical pain. Additionally, two things that struck me as I studied this text First, his disciples were present, albeit sleeping at times. I believe the disciples would always remember this moment where they saw the humanity of Jesus and the feelings of emotion and anguish that overwhelmed him that evening. They weren't that far from Jesus. I mean, Luke, Luke's account says they were but a stone's throw away. So they were close. I mean, do you think the disciples would recall this moment during those times in ministry? where they felt anguished or overwhelmed. Second, it's a reminder for us that our Savior King knows our grief and distress because he has experienced sorrow and trouble. Church, we could run to a Savior who knows our deepest pain, 
because he's been, he's been through the deepest of pains. And we see it here in the garden. As we go to our second point this morning, we should understand that it wasn't death, even the pending torment of the cross that caused Jesus sorrow and trouble. He knew he was going to die. He predicted his death multiple times. So what's the reason for the pain? Well, we find the answer on our next point, which I call the prayer of the king. The prayer of the king. Reading, starting from verse 39, and going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So, could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you might not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink, unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Now with his soul heavy, even to death, we find the only thing that Jesus could do at this very moment. In the dark garden, as humanity sleeps, Jesus prays to the Father. Jesus entered earth as a light into the world full of darkness. Now we find the light calling out of darkness to the Father. And so what we find here first is, is a prayer to the Father. Jesus prayed multiple, multiple times, at the very least three, as, as Matthew records it. But we found, what we find here is he's praying with urgency. The description of him praying is in the imperfect tense, meaning it was a continuous and constant action. Right? So what, what's happening is he would walk, and then he would fall on his face and pray. Then he'd do it again. He would walk and fall on his face. Over and over, he got up, sunk to the ground, and prayed to God the Father. Not only did he pray with urgency, but he also prayed with intimacy or affection. Interestingly, the word used for father found in the Gospel of Mark's account is different. There's an added word there. Let me read to you Mark 14, verse 36. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Abba is a word in Aramaic. It's a language Jesus spoke. It's an intimate word that describes a close relationship between child and parent. I mean, the, the English equivalent would be daddy. So what is Jesus doing here? He's intimately saying, oh, daddy, let this agony I'm facing go by if you so will. Remember, this is the humanity of Christ. The king's pain led him to calling out to the father about his agony. And so this is, this is such a great reminder that, that Jesus is not a divine robot, but a unique human who felt and experienced pain. I remember what, what, what Pastor Rod said about David's prayer at the end of 2 Samuel. He said, the author did, doesn't want you to just read it. He wants you to feel it. Friends, feel this moment in the garden. 
not mystically, but as we see the king fall over and over, face to the ground, we must have a greater sense of this moment. And here's the reason why. Listen, here's the reason why we need to have a greater sense of this moment. Because it is at this moment Jesus moves from agony into submission. He moves from agony into submission at this very moment. Look at verse 39. My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Again, it wasn't necessary death that caused sorrow and trouble, but it was experiencing the wrath of God. Therefore, when Jesus is referring to this cup, it's not primarily physical suffering, but spiritual suffering. And the Bible talks about this cup. Let me read for you a couple um, scripture references about this cup. Psalm 75, 8. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it. And all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. Isaiah 51, verse 17. Wake yourself. Wake yourself. Stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk, drunk to the dregs of the bowl, the cup of staggering. Jeremiah chapter 25, verses 15 to 16. Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. They shall drink and stagger and be crazed because of the sword that I am sending among them. This cup, again, is a metaphor for God's wrath. It's the same imagery used in, in Revelation 14.10. He also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, of God's anger. One commentary puts it, Jesus was not a coward about to face Roman soldiers. He was a savior about to experience divine wrath. Divine wrath from his father. Now think about this. From eternity past, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were glorifying each other. They were perfectly loving each other from eternity past. Then all of a sudden, the Father says to the Son, I'm going to kill you. So when Jesus went to the cross, the cup of God's wrath was poured out on his one and only Son, Jesus Christ. The theological key word here is propitiation. And I've never heard it in a song until last week. And it's in the Bible, but I was like, oh, we could sing propitiation. Good. Um, but in order for us to understand this word, we must understand the character of God, his holiness. You see, God is holy. He commands holiness. He says, be holy for I am holy. However, we are sinners who could never be holy apart from Jesus Christ. And because sin entered the world through one man in Adam, we are now all sinners. And so sin disgusts God. It disgraces a holy and perfect God. And hear this, no one throughout all of history could satisfy God's wrath because of our depravity. No one could satisfy God's wrath. No human being. But only one man could satisfy, could satisfy God's wrath. 
and that's Jesus Christ. Therefore, propitiation refers to something or someone, Jesus Christ, who turns aside wrath by taking away sin. Jesus endured the wrath that we deserved. He is our propitiation. 1 John 2.2, he is the propitiation of our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. In the very beginning, in the very beginning in Genesis, all Adam had to do was obey God so that he may live. That's all he had to do was obey God. Jesus Christ obeyed God fully and perfectly, yet God was going to crush him. Jesus was ready to drink this cup. Look at verse 42. Again, for the second time, he went and prayed, My Father, if this cannot cannot pass, unless I drink it, your will be done. Jesus Christ fully knew he had to drink this cup, the cup of wrath. The garden opens our eyes to the reality of what Jesus knew before he traveled to the cross. Jonathan Edwards, in his sermon on this very text, he says this, If Christ had not fully known before he took it and drank it, it would not have properly been his own action as a human being. But when he took that cup then, knowing what was in it, so was his love to us infinitely the more wonderful and so was his obedience to God infinitely the more perfect. He, as he faced anguish, the humble king loved God perfectly by accepting this cup, but he also loved us by drinking God's wrath. In one of his darkest hours, as we go back into our text, he was looking for comfort from his friends. Yet Jesus could not find comfort from his friends. Again, we are reminded that he found them sleeping three times. And we may ask ourselves, how could they be sleeping at a time like this when Jesus was in so much agony? The truth truth is, uh, they didn't know any better. And Jesus knew that. I mean, Jesus had already prepared them for the past three years. And now he's ultimately preparing them for what's to come, which is the cross. And so the, te- the temptation that Jesus was referring to was not the, the, the temptation in falling asleep, but from falling away as their Savior is about to go through the gospel journey unto death. Verse 40, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. He said to Peter, so you, could you not watch with me one hour? And if we remember, right in the previous scene, Jesus calls out to Peter, the very disciple, right? The, the very disciple that he called in the previous scene in chapter 26, verse 33. This is what Peter says, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Verse 35, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And so Jesus lovingly says, look, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. As we approach Good Friday and the road to the cross, we are reminded that Peter and the other disciples will be tempted and tried, yet they will fail because they all scattered. I like how one writer describes the situation so vividly. Hear this. Quote, he says, they fell asleep on him three times. Every time he's walking out, it's like the father is saying, that's the human race for you. Swallow hell for them. 
taking to yourself the spiritual atomic bomb and let it explode for them. End quote. All the pressure on Jesus Christ, and he experienced hell for us. He experienced the wrath of God in order to glorify the Father, but also to show his love toward us, that while we were, yet still, while we were still sinners, he died for us. And we quote this passage over and over, 2 Corinthians 5.21, He, God, made the one who did not know sin to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He submitted to the Father's will fully to be sin on our behalf. In the dark garden, as the world sleeps, Jesus willfully submitted to the Father. May we worship him over and over again. It does not end here, though, for the king's march has only began. Which brings us to our third and last point this morning, the plight of the king. The plight of the king. Verse 45, Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Lastly, we find a difficult situation before him. As Good Friday emerges, Jesus, the Son of Man, is now on the verge of betrayal. Now look, look who appears at his arrest. Look at verse 47. Look who appears. Let's, let's read this together. Chapter 26, verse 47. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs, from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Can you imagine what Jesus was thinking as he saw the very people coming toward him, these very people coming toward him? I mean, the disciples were also present. Listen, Jesus had to eventually die for the people that he was being surrounded by at the garden. Look at this list again. The religious leaders that denied him, they plotted to kill him from the very beginning. Judas, the one who walked with him in ministry for three plus years, he witnessed miracle after miracle, all his teachings, yet he betrayed him at the very end. The crowds that hailed him as their, their king only for a little while, yet turned their backs on him. And then the disciples who fell asleep and eventually abandoned him when things got tough. Jesus, in submitting to the Father and drinking the cup of God's wrath, says this. He says, I'm going to die for these people. But listen, in the same way, I'm going to die for you. Here's what I mean, friends. We, we've denied him more than once in our life. We've betrayed him again and again. We've held him as king one moment, then turned our back to worship the world in the next moment. And on several occasions, we've abandoned him, just like the disciples. Yet through it all, through our, through our disobedience, Jesus says, I'm going to risk my life in order to spare all of you. Church, that is the gospel. The gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ, the perfect one, died for our sins and rose again, triumphant over all enemies, so that we are restored to God and can have everlasting joy in him forever. Wonderful, merciful Savior, precious Redeemer and friend, 
Who would have thought that a lamb could rescue the souls of men? Humble and human Jesus, precious lamb, rescuing the souls of men by taking the wrath of God on our behalf. He drank this cup and he drank it willingly. To quote John Newton, he says this, to see him as he is and to be like him, this is worth dying for and worth living for. This brings us to our conclusion this morning, which is always the question, what do we do with a text like this? What do we do with a text like this? I mean, we've heard this story over and over again, but what do we do now? What do we do now as a church body? And so I have three exhortations for you, exhortations for you. Three things I want us to think about and ponder on. First, we must consider the Christian life for our personal walk. Maybe this passage will cause you to think more deeply, more humbly about the gospel. I mean, we say it all the time here in this church. We say preach the gospel to ourselves. But do we understand the implications of, the, of preaching the gospel to ourselves? Do we really know what that means? You know, I, I, I recently came across this passage um, just a couple months ago. It was a passage read at, at, at my wedding. It's very simple. We all know it. Ephesians 5.25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Now, I'm just giving you an example here. How could we read a passage like this and remain unchanged toward our wives? That's what I was thinking about. Husbands, do we wake up and say, I want to purposely love my wife just as Christ loved the church? Because that's a gospel implication. We are called to cherish her, to love her, to nourish her. No matter how I feel, we need to sacrifice everything for my bride. I need to sacrifice everything for my bride. And for some of us, that's painful. And that's just one example. Or maybe, for some of us, you dread waking up tomorrow. As you go, as you go to work or as you care for your family, maybe you're, you're facing certain situations in life that you think no one would ever understand. Maybe you've been humiliated, disrespected, even wrongfully accused of all things. But here's the glorious truth of the gospel is that Jesus was humiliated. He was disrespected and wrongfully accused. He was tempted, tortured, and killed. You have a Savior and King that has been through it all. And so you could face tomorrow. You're going to be okay. Second, my second exhortation is consider lost people. And so I exhort you, dear friends, to not keep this gospel to yourself. As we are reminded of today, Jesus took the wrath for those who were destined to experience God's wrath. Jesus took the wrath for those who are destined to experience God's wrath. May we share the gospel to all people, to the ends of the earth. And so as we think about Christ and Easter, let us, pray, let us prayerfully consider inviting those who do not know Christ not only on Easter Sunday, but every Sunday. And if they can't make it, I'm sure 
that Gateway Bible Church is well-equipped to share the gospel with them. Friends, my, my fear is that we are solid in theology and doctrine. We adore God, yet we refuse to share this gospel. If that is true, then that is a great tragedy. For all of us, it took an act of God to grab hold of our hearts. And so may we plead with God to soften the hearts of the people around us, our neighbors, our community, our workplaces, our home. And lastly, once again, I exhort you to consider Jesus Christ, our sovereign king. As we think through the cross this week, as we meditate on the gospel, and as we attend Good Friday services, let us meditate on the Lord Jesus Christ, his life, death, and resurrection. Seeing Christ allows us to find comfort so that as we approach eternal glory, the smell of heaven blows into our face while being surrounded by the dark stench of this world. Life may seem uncomfortable right now, but Jesus reminds us over and over that everything will be okay. It is redemptive love that speaks to us and says, sorry for the little bumps, but it'll smooth out soon. And that's the journey to the cross. Church, darkness has come. Darkness will come this week as we're being reminded of it constantly. But the dawn awaits us. We bow in worship, yet we rise and press on. For the betrayer has already been defeated. Here is our Savior in the dark garden. All glory be to Christ our King. Let us pray. Lord, as I mentioned, I, I merely just touched the surface of your life here, specifically in the garden. And so, as we think about this, as we think through the gospel, Lord, you, you experienced it all. You went through all the sorrow and the pain that we could, ever, that we could never imagine. And so, Lord, we are thankful that you did that. You did that in human form. Without sin, you did it perfectly. And you did it all the way up until your death on the cross. And so I ask you now that you will soften our hearts, that you will save those who do not know you this morning, that we share this gospel, but that we constantly praise you over and over again. Lord, we, we give you all the glory. All these things we ask in your name. Amen.